Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and we have Dr. Coleman Ford on the program with us today. Dr. Ford currently is the Assistant Professor of Humanities at the Texas Baptist College in Fort Worth, Texas. He has taught at other schools and seminaries as well. He's an author. He's a speaker. He's written for a Gospel Coalition for other theological journals. He's been part of the ERLC, which I unashamedly, unhesitatingly say the Baptists had to work on their acronyms. It's the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, started by Richard Land, if memory serves, good group of folks. But he continues to write and publish and work with students. He's married to Alex. They have three kids and live in Fort Worth, Texas where Michael Martin Murphy wrote a great song called On the Muscle of My Arm. It's a red and blue tattoo that says Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. I love you. Yeah, Dr. Ford, thanks for being with us. The book is Formed in His Image. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to talk about this, mm-hmm. but welcome to the broadcast. Thank you, Fred. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, and a bit of a trivia, I might have a Texas-related tattoo on my arm as well. So <laughs> uh, I'm not going to show it here or talk about it, but just... I have a great opinion. We appreciate that. that. We appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. yeah you, you can share that with your students, yeah. but not with my audience. There you no. go. <laughs> <laughs> All good. Hey, in Nashville, if you don't have a tattoo, something's wrong. So That's right. something's wrong with me because I don't have any. Okay. Well, let's talk about the book. I always like to ask the most obvious obtuse question. Why did you write the book? Let's start there. <laughs> well, it's something that really sort of birthed out of a class that I teach, which is often how these things go. But when I stepped into my role at Southwestern Seminary in Texas Baptist College, I was asked to teach what was called Christian formation at the time, which is sort of a alternate nomenclature for spiritual formation. And as I began sort of preparing for that class, I just kind of reviewed, here are the doctrines I believe, here are the things I think are important for this conversation. I originally developed it for sort of practitioners, pastors in training. But then as I started to drill down into it, I realized, okay, these are some things that I feel like the church member next to me needs to hear. Maybe my own parents (laughs) or family members might want to hear and sort of got that burden to communicate it that way. So yeah, I started with a class and then ended up into the book that we're holding now. So you use the word nomenclature. I'll be a little picky as we start out because whenever I, and this is not Oh, gosh, 15, 20 books on spiritual formation that are on my shelves. And I have friends, we've talked about this a lot. Why not discipleship? Mm -hmm. Why not sanctification? Why not Christian maturity? Mm -hmm. Why do we use a word that maybe calls up some different imagery that may not be, quote, biblical, or at least clearly Mm -hmm. biblical, Mm -hmm. as where discipleship and sanctification are? Is this different, Dr. Ford? Yeah, these are great questions, because as you mentioned, nomenclature is important. And I would want to ensure that the things that I'm talking about are biblical and deriving from the scriptures. So when I think about discipleship, I often communicate the sort of relational aspect of discipleship, right? We are disciples of Christ. We're called to make disciples of Christ, followers. And really, if you want to think about the sort of language of disciple, it's learner, right? Someone who's learning. It's, of course, for Christians, much more than that. It's a following, followership that we're called into. And then, of course, you have the sort of doctrinal foundations that go behind that. So we talk about sanctification, the role of the Holy Spirit, which is really where the idea of spiritual formation comes from. For a Christian, spiritual formation has with it the idea of the Holy Spirit as the agent, as the work, the person who is behind this. And the idea of formed really, I think, comes with the idea 
well, we see it communicated in Galatians chapter four, where Paul talks about laboring on the behalf of the church until Christ be formed in you. So sort of this idea of sort of progressive sanctification, going back to that, and building into the idea of discipleship, that spiritual formation is about sort of the process, the on the ground sort of things that we do to further along our Christ likeness. So it's corporate, personal, and lots of different contextual factors as well that goes into that. So and that's yeah. starting to, that conversation, there's more to talk about for sure. Sure, yeah. sure. JT English wrote your preface and he used an illustration of practice makes perfect. And I like where he's going. I see where he's going. And he also differentiated that between practice makes perfect, but not spiritual perfectionism, which when I was reading that, I would say a trend I have seen, Coleman, many young younger pastors are almost teaching a kind of a spiritual perfectionism, that if you're in the Word, if you're spending time in prayer, if you're sharing Christ, and it's almost bigger, better, newer, more. You have to keep doing it, keep growing, or you're not you know, growing as a Christian. Mm. Even sort of uh, little veils of you might not be a Christian. Mm. And I kind of rise when I hear this perfectionistic language about, wait a minute, nothing I can ever do will make God love me more or less, mm. right? Mm. So help me out so we're not trying to tell our friends you have to be better as however many indices we want to say, mm-hmm. your formation, now you're a better Christian because mm-hmm. you look more like Christ. Am I am I off in the weeds here? Yeah, no. And that's a pastoral question that we have to address at every moment because, well, I think about times where I was working with individuals, leaders in a small group ministry that I was overseeing, and the perpetual temptation was to always be, one, the Christian that had everything figured out because they were leading these other men and women and they were going to be the role model, which is true in some sense, but then that they somehow had to have all of the gifts and abilities as the pastor on the stage or this charismatic teacher in the ministry or something like this. And and every time I had to sit down with these men and women and say, hey, by the way, what God wants you to be is normal. (laughs) The best thing that you bring to this group is yourself and your own walk with Christ, which is going to be imperfect and is going to be a process, just like everyone else in this group. And so we need to always remind people that we're on a path of growth, every single one of us. I can't compare myself to you, though we should have mentors that we look up to. We might have mentors in the faith that we see who have a fervent prayer life, who meditate and memorize scripture to a degree that we want to have. But at the same time, we are all called to depend upon the Lord and grow more towards the image of Christ. And so I think about illustrating our spiritual life as something kind of like the stock market graph that we see oftentimes. Well, if we like to see those things, you know, there's a lots of ups and downs, right? Or maybe you're looking at your retirement portfolio. <laughs> and the past couple of years, it's... Kinda, I try not to. Yeah, right. I try not to. Yeah, unless you just want <laughs> to be depressed. But on the whole, right, it's trending, painful. It's trending upward is the hope. And so... Every single one of us, upon trusting in Christ by faith, at the cross, we see our need for Christ and His forgiveness, we are then growing. Some of us might be here, some of us might be there, but none of us is the super-Christian. That doesn't exist. We all look to Christ and then encourage each other to grow in the ways that we need to. So, so yeah, to your point, we've got to address that at every turn to avoid that temptation because it's going to be there. I uh, remember Fred Smith, who is with the Lord now, but he was uh, 
a Christian leader in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and quite a character, but he had some great reductionistic quotes. And one of them was maturity is turning discipline into a reflex. And I always love that because I tried to encourage our folks, Coleman, that, you know, God's word, God's spirit, and God's people were the things you looked at. You know, want to spend time in God's word, not because I have to, but because I can, not because I should, but because it's good. God's spirit, am I submitting and being controlled by the Spirit of God who indwells me, which is a, a very complicated relationship. And then God's people. Am I around people who are going in the same direction? So God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people, these disciplines. And yet, truthfully, that can sound like a kind of legalistic perfectionist. If I do this, then I'm a growing, or to use your language, I'm being formed as a Christian, a spiritual formation. Again, help me out. Help me not parse these two finely, but to parse them fine enough so that people understand what are we talking about when we say grow or being formed in the image of Christ? Yeah. So we talked about, or you mentioned previously, the doctrine of sanctification. This needs to be unpacked for Christians to avoid the temptation we talked about before. It also needs to be unpacked to help people see the full implications of that, as you mentioned, that there are corporate dimensions to that, that we've got to be connected to the body of Christ, though we understand that there are going to be times where that's disrupted. (laughs) Think of COVID recently. Well, as we think about this idea, the doctrine of sanctification has to be unpacked for our people. And when we think about that, the doctrine of sanctification has corporate facets. It has personal facets. And both of those things are important. I think a lot of times when it comes to, and to your point, right, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, there is a tendency, especially in evangelical circles, to kind of have a very personalized view of that. It's God in my quiet time, which is, I would argue, very important for our spiritual growth. But missing in a lot of those contexts and those conversations is the corporate aspect. I do my spiritual disciplines, yes, for the benefit of my own soul, but to pour it back into the community. As I commune with the Lord through prayer and reading his word, I'm praying that it would bring to mind someone in my small group or my church that needs that ministry or needs prayer, needs my encouragement, my support. So yeah, so the doctrine of sanctification or the idea of sanctification is multifaceted. It also means that we, as we talked about earlier, should not be comparing ourselves to other people. Though I might look back and say, wow, I've really grown in my desire and my ability to maybe memorize scripture. That is not, therefore, an opportunity for me to look down on a brother or sister who has not or who is still working on that or still maybe not even seeing the value of that. And so when we think about community and sanctification, we need to think, well, with the lens of helping each other be formed in the image of Christ and consider each other in the struggles and the needs that we have. So yeah, there's a lot to talk about there, but those are just some initial thoughts. You talk about beauty in your book, and that's another one. My friend Ken Boa has in his last probably eight to 10 years now been really studying beauty. And I'm sort of an analytic, you know, linear, you know, thinker, and I'm going, beauty? Where does this enter into the Christian life, much less spiritual formation? Well, this is one of my favorite topics, and would love to talk all day about this. Well, I think it's important for us because the idea of beauty 
is something that's a, if I could put it this way, a slow idea. By that, I mean it takes time and we have to cultivate our sort of heart and our desire to see what is beautiful, not just what works. Although sometimes what works is good for us, right? We spend 30 minutes in the scriptures. We spend 10 minutes in prayer, kind of map that out on a schedule. That's great. But our goal should be, as we're doing that, seeing the beauty of God, the work, the manifold wisdom of God unfolded before us. And we use the word glory all the time, right? Glory is, we talk about God's glory, giving glory to God. But really, the sort of idea of beauty is very much related to glory. If we want to glorify God, what we want to do is we want to make him beautiful. We want to make him beautiful, more beautiful to us, more beautiful to other people. And the reason is because there's lots of things competing for our and our desires. We want to glorify ourselves. We want to glorify our maybe our family or even our ministry if we're in ministry. And that competes with glorifying God. We do, of course, want to glorify God through our family. We want to glorify God through our ministry, uh, through our outreach. But those in and of themselves are not the glory that we're seeking after. We're seeking after the glory and the beauty of God. So I think if we frame it around those ideas or that idea of glory and beauty, we're going to be much more desirous to see things happen on a sort of practical level. And so kind of having that theory inform our practice, I think is very important for us. Okay, let me push back a little bit. How am I making God beautiful? I mean, he is who he is. He's unfathomable. We know of him through the scripture. We know about his character, which is unfathomable, but we know, you know, he's good, he's kind, he's merciful, he's just, he's holy, he's perfect, on and on. But you said I make him beautiful? Mm-hmm. Or did I misunderstand? I think I might have well, what I might have meant is I make him beautiful to someone else in the sense of helping them see who he is. So as I work with someone who is struggling with an addiction, right? What is more beautiful, that person? Well, it's, it's something that's a personal desire or a personal addiction or desire rather than seeing their fulfillment in God. So what am I doing? I'm called to make him, God, more beautiful to that person than this issue that they might be dealing with. So, And that's a part of discipleship. That's a part of the formation is that we put before people the beauty and the glory of God of course, asking and trusting the Spirit to bring the transformation that's necessary there. But that's, in some senses, the best that we can do. Put God before people and help them to see that He is, in fact, more beautiful than anything else that they could desire or long for in this world. Along with beauty, you talk about imagination. And that's another one that, again, I'm a bit of a stickler for biblical language, and I'm going, imagination? So, again, help me out here. What are you saying that I'm not quite catching? Oh, good. Again, I love this conversation because when I think about imagination, I simply think about who we are as image bearers of God, meaning God gave us faculties to think deeply, to imagine reality, and to make those things happen. Specifically, I think about the idea of of what we do in our lives just to create things. I'm not even thinking about an artist who might create something or a film director who might create things. You might consider that more of the imaginative process, a writer of fiction. I'm just talking about the fact that you and I imagine what our day is going to be like, and then we take steps to accomplish those goals. And so in particular, 
if we're going to think about our spiritual life, we need to do a couple things. We need to imagine the kind of person that God wants us to be and that he's calling us to be. So I'm called to be a father who serves and loves my wife, my family, to care for them, to provide for them, to sacrifice for them, to humble myself and to be a servant. Therefore, I need to consider what the kind of things I need to do to allow that or to shape that to happen. And then also the idea of imagination, we get all sorts of cues in scripture as to how to use our imagination. I mean, I don't, I can't read the book of Exodus without imagining what the tabernacle was like. And even just that idea of God gifting these individuals to recreate just a small glimpse of who he is and sort of the heavenly realms, that's an imaginative task. And so as we think through that, right, the idea of imagination, I think, pairs exactly with who we are as image bearers of God. And then we take that to the next level as far as our spiritual formation goes. You write in that chapter, for spiritual formation to take root and thrive, we need to remember that God does not care about our happiness and only an abiding life in him will bring about the flourishing that all desire. I like a lot of that. And at the same time, I go, boy, Coleman, do Christians really desire that? Mm, That's a big question. We should think about that and consider that. And I really want to help Christians understand the sort of idea of, again, fulfillment. What is the fulfillment that we're called to have in our life? Is it to be simply sort of model citizens, good husbands, good wives, good fathers, good mothers, upstanding marketplace entrepreneurs? I mean, all those things, of course are byproducts, I think, of a vibrant Christian life. But those are not the things that we're called to ultimately strive for, nor the things in themselves do we find happiness. We find happiness in them insofar as they are directed towards God's purpose and His glory. And the aim of our life being that, God's glory, His beauty, as we've already talked about. And then everything else I do in my life is a channel or a a way of expressing that through my giftings, through the callings I have, and desiring to grow in my happiness in the Lord through serving my wife, through spending time with my children, through serving the church in some form or fashion. And one of the things I've noticed in uh, 40 plus years of being in ministry of one kind or another, the decades tell a lot about how a person views not only life, but the Christian life. For example, people that were my parents' age, that generation mostly that are with the Lord, they were sacrificial They were others first. They were the marriage and the children took precedence over uh, acquisition of material wealth. Most of the builder generation had far less financially than their children. And then not to get too hung up on the boomer and the different labels, but how that changed unintended consequences. So I grew up, I'm in my mid to late 60s now, I grew up with the idea of work hard, have it better than my parents. And all my siblings did and do. And then those parents looked at us a little bit askance going, well, wait a minute, we didn't really mean that. And then our children are bequeathed a different culture. Fast forward, you're dealing with students. And the way the builder looked at the Christian life, sacrifice others first, live on as little as possible, save as much as possible. I mean, they were, I would say, more serious about their faith. But then because the acquisition of materialism and wealth made it easier for us, and then you lay this over on the spiritual life, 
I look at 20 and 30 year olds and I scratch my head, Coleman. I go, I don't even understand the issues of, you talked about identity a moment ago, identification. I'm prattling a bit, but my point is these things change maybe even more quickly than decades, but they become ensconced. And the way you and I might look at the Christian life, I would say discipleship, sanctification, you would say formation. How are they hearing that? And is it any different? I guess is what I'm asking. The way we approach this, the way we teach it. Yeah. Sorry for the long question. No, that's very helpful because what you're identifying there are generational contexts in which we are called we're called to be a follower of Christ, regardless of the context. But there are generational, yeah, contextual factors that inform that, that also take shape around that. The idea that, yeah, my parents benefited from sort of the hard work of my grandfather in particular, and then I therefore also benefited from the work of my parents. We're just afforded different opportunities, and therefore we have challenges as well, temptations as well. My temptation is not to sort of see like, well, look at what I built and look at how I sort of uh, pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I've never known a day where I didn't have everything I needed, right? I didn't always have what I wanted, but you know what I wanted yeah. wasn't the best for me anyways. And so now my temptation, kind of to your point, is to think about, one, do I need all the things that I think I need? But then also, are the things that my culture says I need, are they really what's good for me? You know, and not that I somehow have to sort of like throw out my iPhone and then just go back to farming, but it's simply to say the desires of our heart are there, have been there from the very beginning, and sin has corrupted those, and culture has then therefore said, now this is the way you do things, this is the way you do things, to where we always have to be aware of the sort of non-Christian or non-spiritual answers to those questions. So you talk about my students who are firmly planted in sort of Gen Z, whatever the alpha now is, I can't remember what that is. You know, born after the year 2000, that's kind of the context I'm teaching and and working with. Similar, right? They've never known a day where they didn't have even more technology than I had. And I just, you know, I just turned 40. So I've had pretty much all the things I've wanted in the technology sphere since being young. But now they're used to sort of finding their identity in that technology, right? To whereas before, I just saw technology as the tool, and I still try to see it that way. It's the tool to help me get the job done. It's the sort of mechanism to help me produce something. Now the temptation is to actually find your identity in that technology. That's a totally new world that we live in. We have not experienced that, at least to that degree, and that sort of hyper-focus before. So now we have to tell students, your identity cannot be found in the social media profile. It cannot be found in the followers. It cannot be found in sort of piecing or sort of pasting together this facade. The best that that can give you is an image. It can give you an image of someone who might look successful, have it all together, be influential, whatever, but your identity is not found in that. It can't be, and it'll always leave you lacking and wanting more. And so, yeah, talk about identity. I guess every generation or, you know, category looks at the other askance. You know, years ago came up with a sort of a, an idea that the old dismissed the young, the young dismissed the old, and too much is lost in the middle. And yet 
when you look at Gen Z or the next gen or the nuns or the screen generation, which is something I just recently read a little bit about the last couple of years, been shocked. It wasn't just the notebook or the tablet. Now it's the phone. It's only mm-hmm. the phone. And to think about just from a neurosynaptic, neuroscience, neuroplasticity approach to life through mm-hmm. this little device, mm-hmm. and not to mention all the neck problems people are going to have, it's changed so. I mean, entitlement is blase. Mm-hmm. It's not an entitlement. It's an expectation. Mm-hmm. As where my grandparents, yours perhaps, parents, so forth, the Christian life was serious. And I don't mean it wasn't fun at times, but it was a serious business that you're following the man, the person, the God who saved you from your sin, and he gave you a new life. He indwelled you with his spirit. He gives you his word, and you and I are to be transformed or spiritually formed to be different. And yet the entitlement culture, and as you've just pointed out, the identity of social media twisting our fabric. I mean, this begets, it almost seems more complicated than being on the farm and having to grow a crop or breed cattle or uh, work in a mill and go home and love my family. I mean, it's gotten almost metastasized. So how do we bring people back to my vernacular, God's word, God's spirit, God's people? Are you growing as Christ wants you to grow? Yeah, and I think it's a big conversation, as you mentioned, right? The idea of how these things are affecting our personalities, our brains, all those kind of things, which are serious conversations to have. But just to boil it down, I mean, there is something to be said without sort of, again, you know, kind of retreating back into some sort of you know, golden era vision. There is something to be said about the simplicity of the Christian life in the sense that God has given you not only life, right, by the very word of his power, you are living, you're breathing. He's put you in a place. He's put every one of us in a certain place, whether that's in Texas or in Tennessee or across the ocean. And that actually means something. Social media and technology doesn't want you to consider how important that is. They want you to be transported to the next thing, just click on the next slide or, the, or scroll down to the next thing. But no, God has put us in a time and a place to do certain things for him and his glory. And therefore, we need to consider how some of these things might be influencing us negatively to consider the person that lives next to me or sitting next to me here in the coffee shop, rather than just getting on to the social media to see what's going on with the latest Marvel movie (laughs) or something. But no, we need to think about the simple, as you talked about, like I work, I go to this place, I see these people, I come home. And then how is sort of my faithfulness in Christ woven into those things? At some level, that is being threatened. And we need to consider how to help people see, again, just that idea of place and who they are. And so I see with my students, so I'm privileged to be with students who are ministry-minded. They're coming to learn mostly for a vocational ministry, some not, but still have sort of that tool belt, if you will. And a lot of them are serious about the gospel. They're serious about taking the gospel to the unreached peoples or to other places. But a lot of these temptations are still woven in. And so it's to sort of kind of peel back the onion a little bit and say, hey, by the way, the culture has formed you in certain ways to think this way. And though you have, you've been redeemed by God to now live for his glory and see your place in sort of his his story and to do ministry for him— there's still going to be a temptation to think, 
well, now I need to sort of catalog this in my social media feed in order for it to be legitimate, in order to feel like an authentic person. And that's the temptation we need to fight, that you are not less of a person just because a thousand followers aren't watching it. The God of the universe sees the work that you're doing. And though you're doing it perhaps imperfectly, and sometimes your motivations are not always where they should be, again, back to that idea of being an ordinary, normal person who's been gifted for God's glory to do certain things, it's okay just to be normal. It's okay that people don't know. In fact, that's where real faithfulness is kind of displayed, where Mm. people don't know what's going on, right? Like thousand followers or whatever, don't know that you did that thing. Who does know? The Lord who sees in secret. And so, yeah, I think, again, that's a temptation for all of us to some degree, but for sure in our 2023 day, we've got to help Christians understand that your normal everyday faithfulness is what God is after. Now, you do something in a book on spiritual formation that I think is unique. I'm not the expert on all books on spiritual formation. I've never seen anyone talk about the Trinitarian doctrine as part of understanding spiritual formation. So I appreciate it, but for uh, folks who are like scratching their head the first time they're hearing that, why do we need to understand the Trinity? Well, that's a big question. How do we understand the Trinity in, in relationship yeah. to spiritual formation? Yeah, big question. And I that's kind of where I start, because if we are to understand the idea of spiritual formation, the Holy Spirit as the agent of that, we have got to understand how everything that we do derives at some level from the person of God, the being of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, as you talk about, that's a big question, a big idea. I don't presume to unpack that to any sort of degree that would help people you know, understand all the ins and outs of Trinitarian doctrine. Well, then this interview is over. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any answers for you. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> See you later. Yeah, yeah that's right. Uh, I'm a fraud. No, but what I do think is important and what we have to remember at all times is that the Trinity is the essence of our Christian life. We have been welcomed into the life of God through the work of Jesus Christ. We're empowered by the Spirit to then glorify God. We're fulfilling the plan of God through our life as image bearers. And so we've got to start with the Trinity and we've got to at least at a basic level unpack what that means for the average Christian in the church. I'm not presuming that every church is now going to have sort of a whole class on the Trinity, but we do need to talk about it more. You know, some people will say and accuse evangelicals of sort of like dismissing the Trinity. I mean, we are Trinitarian. That's a fact. We believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, as it's unfolded revelation of God in scriptures. The problem is we don't always connect the implications of that. Why do we believe we should be missional people. Well, of course, we've got scriptures to talk about that, but we also have an understanding of who God is, who sends the Son in the incarnation to redeem mankind, who then sends the Spirit to empower the church for ministry. That's a missional activity. So there's lots to say there, but I think to your point, we've got to begin peeling back that curtain more in these practical ministry conversations to say Trinitarian theology is not just for the seminary student. It's for every Christian to understand and to take as their own. I remember when I was with Moody, I taught a series based on the doctrinal statement at Moody Bible Institute, which, of course, those things are always landmines because 
the theologians disagree on essence or persons and all this type of thing. But in my study, the doctrine of the Trinity in that document and then beyond, I came to the conclusion there's no salvation apart from a Trinitarian Godhead. And I remember teaching that in the chapel when I was going through that series, and it was fascinating the pushback I got from certain professors because I said persons, and others wanted me to say essence. And it was a fascinating discussion, but I'm a simpleton. I'm a Bible exposition guy more than I am a theologian, but I came back to 1 Corinthians 12, which you rarely see, you know, if you get a handbook of theology or a multi-volume and look up the doctrine of the Trinity, you rarely will find this passage cited. Sometimes you will, but in chapter 12, verse 4 through 7 in 1 Corinthians, which is his corrective instruction over the misuse of gifts, but he says there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of ministries, but the same Lord, varieties of effects, but the same God who works Mm -hmm. all things in all persons. And the word persons is debated there, depending on your English translation. But then he says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And I thought, that's a beautiful passage to understand the Trinitarian doctrine, how it affects the believer, because I need God to affect it. And the Lord is the one who, if you will, distributes that ministry. I always thought it was a great passage, but I applaud you you tackling it, even in a book on formation, because I'm with a group of guys on Monday nights, monthly, and half of them are modalists. You know, they don't think it matters. And I'm like, this is very important, guys, to understand, as you said, more simply, God sent the Son, the Son sends the Spirit. And apart from the Spirit, you know, there is no sealing in Ephesians 1, right, 3, 13. There's no sealing of the Spirit that assures the believer of his or her salvation. So anyway, I thought it was remarkable that you give that as a foundation piece for this is important for you to think about your spiritual formation. Yeah, thank you. Well, and to your point about hanging out with modalists, I know that was a little tongue-in-cheek, I'm sure, but it's still the case that in a lot of worship services, you go in and, and we're functional yes. Unitarians, yes. right? Based on the songs that we're singing, prayers that we're praying. Again, I don't presume anybody in there is confessing that or believing that and sort of, you know, kind of like, sinister about it, but we do need to be well, more it's a poor education. Yeah, it's a poor education. It's not sinister. Yeah. 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 So it, it is something that we just need to be more explicit about it and not be afraid to tackle, especially for the pastor who feels like they're not equipped to do that. Well, of course, there's resources to do that. Oh, yeah. And then although I have come to find out that people are actually thirsty for that, Yes. they just don't know that they can come to you about it, or they don't know that there's something that you know, that might be available at some level to work through that. So, Well, in, in keeping with the Trinitarian doctrine, let's, let's move to another chapter in your book, the Holy Spirit's role and how we understand him as a person, not an entity, and some helps there because I think a lot of us, I had an acquaintance who would pray to the Spirit, and it almost sounded like he was a Native American or something. I go, that's maybe not wrong, but I find no citation in Scripture where it says, I pray to the Holy Spirit. I'm indwelt by the Spirit. Well, I'm indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. So anyway, so it's a complicated, wonderful subject, but help us understand the Holy Spirit's role in our spiritual formation. Yeah, well, to your point, right? You don't want to say that's wrong when someone prays the Spirit, but what I would say is that it's either incomplete or it's potentially misleading. And especially if you're doing maybe in a public prayer, you really want to be careful. You know, if I'm going to teach a class on prayer, I'm going to say, hey, 
let's pray to the Spirit, saying, Spirit, would you empower this person to share the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, for the sake of your glory, understanding that this is Father, Son, and Spirit, one true God that we're praying to. I would say, yeah, there's probably applications or possibilities to that, but to your point, when we think about the Holy Spirit, I mean, that is most active right now in the current age. So, you know, Jesus talks about with his disciples you know, that I go away. And they're like, what? No way. Better that you go away. And then greater things are you going to do yeah. because of the Holy Spirit. And that's weird for us to fathom. But it's got to be true when you look at the 2,000 years of church history compared to the three years of ministry. But we are sort of saying, hey, the role and the ministry of the Holy Spirit as it's been through the church and God's people has done amazing and profound things. Of course, there are times where people have grieved the Holy Spirit, we still do, and sort of don't act on the Spirit or do things contrary to the Word of God, which is in the, sure. the agent or the means that the Spirit uses. But either way, this is true. We have done these great things, that we are doing these great things, and we don't have to sort of, well, we could talk about manifestations of the Spirit, whether we believe in that or the gifts or things like that. That's not really my point. My point is to say Christians are Spirit-indwelt people. And now we need to understand what that means. That means I have new desires for the things of God, a new sort of vision, if you will, new lenses for my life that I see as God is orchestrating things. I see that more clearly now. I also understand that there is a sort of need to continue walking in the Spirit, as Paul mm -hmm. talks about. We don't walk according to the flesh, meaning fleshly desires, fleshly realities, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes and flesh, as John talks about. We walk according to the Spirit. And what is the things of the Spirit? You know, right? Galatians 5, the gifts of the Spirit. How do we display those? Well, when we're growing in gentleness, that's an indication mm -hmm. that the Spirit's at work. When we're growing in patience, that's an indication that the Spirit's at work. Of course, we have a part to play in that. I have to decide to be more gentle and patient with my almost three, four-year-old son who is acting like a brat sometimes, I need to say, you know what, Lord, help me be more patient with it. I am just that way a lot of times in your eyes, right? And therefore, I need to be just as patient as the Lord is with me in dealing with my children. So yeah, all those things. Yeah, we don't have to sort of get caught up in sort of the debates about the Holy Spirit, although those are important. What we do need to remember is that we cannot ever be successful in our Christian life apart from the Spirit. And the fact that we are growing is an indication that the Spirit. I love the number of cut things to talk about, but the Ephesians, Paul's five walks that he talks about, walk in wisdom, walk worthy of the calling, and so forth. But I appreciate your reference also to Galatians because the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. I've argued for decades that love is the primary participle there, and the others are manifestation of what love looks like. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And if I'm loving, it's others focused, joy, peace, faith, kind. And I can't trump those mm. up. I can't articulate those and go, oh, I'm going to be a better fruit filled Christian. No, I've got to be in connection with the Holy Spirit, submissive to, again, his word, his spirit, and his people before those things, quote, manifest, which leads me to my kind of my final question for you. Can we measure our spiritual growth? Can we measure our spiritual formation? Is that, and I don't mean that pejoratively like I'm reading more and I'm sharing the gospel with my friends more, I'm giving more. But is there a way to measure 
spiritual growth, maturity, and formation? Yeah, that's a question that I have considered often and not wanting to think about sort of a spreadsheet approach to that, right? right, or a graph approach to that. But it has to be the case that we can because we are growing in the same sense that we grow physically one way or another, depending on what we're thinking about, that we measure that growth and we see that growth. I weigh myself on a scale or I, I do certain exercises in the gym. Again, that's not a direct comparison, but I think to sort of grow in spiritual disciplines, we need to consider where are my gaps, right? Where are the things where I'm not as strong in? And therefore, I need to put that before the Lord and myself. Say, Lord, help me to be more faithful in memorizing your word. And so, though it may not be sort of a, you're filling in the thermometer, like on the stage where, you know, your giving is going up, that's not your spiritual life, but you are putting before the Lord good, healthy, spiritual goals, asking for his indwelling spirit to help and provide prompting to do. And then you look back and you see, hey, a year ago, I put this goal out there through prayer, fasting, and other ways of growing in spiritual life. I can see that I have grown. Maybe you can journal that. I don't know. That might be something that you desire to do or not. But so when we talk about spiritual growth, I think we do need to keep that category in mind while also remembering that it's okay if it's slow growth. It's okay if it's a step backwards every now and then because of a life context situation or just a season of doubt or a season of darkness, which spiritual darkness, which you might have from time to time. That is actually probably a way in which the Lord prompts us to grow even more, mm. that we would grow in seeing these times of trial and suffering. So, yeah, so I don't know if that's getting at your question, but I do think we do need to have at least a basic category in mind to help disciples understand, kind of back to your idea of sort of previous generations, sort of like, are you being faithful just to the basics of the Christian faith? And not as a guilt trip, but as right. an opportunity to come alongside as a brother or sister in Christ to say, how can I help? How can I check in with you? How can I meet with you? What resources can I help you with? And so I would love to see that more happen on a regular basis. I know one of the things, and we didn't talk about your uh, use of story in the book, but I find it for me personalized when I look at, am I more patient with people that tend to irritate me? Am I kind toward people Mm. that I don't feel deserve it (laughs) by my measure of life, right? And I think, again, that goes back to the manifestation of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, fruitfulness, self-control. Can I uh, not interrupt people, which is a terrible trait of mine? I get impatient with someone, and I interrupt, learning to rest in those things and say, Lord, this isn't about me. This chapter of my life, if I'm not learning it now, I I probably never will. Anyway, Dr. Coleman Ford's newest book, Formed in His Image, has always information about the author and where you can uh, learn more about him or her, in this case, Dr. Ford, in the show notes. And pick up the book, or you can order it anywhere you purchase books online. Coleman Ford, Formed in His Image. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your ministry. I hope your summer goes well and your semester with students goes great this coming fall. Coleman. Thank you. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonomorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.